Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And I'm Cade Mouse. Hi, Cade. Oh, it's exceptional. Bron and you, you've had a bit I'm of good. a break away from Victoria even. I have. Yeah. Dro- but coastal, of course, as per Marinara theme. You, yeah. Although you're not allowed to go inland, are you, if you're part of Marinara? <laughs> it, it, do you know what? It actually feels wrong. <laughs> <laughs> when I do. Well, you're like, where am I going to get a story from out here that I can bring well, to the show? No, it just feels wrong on some weird level. It's just I get really twitchy if I, you know, have to go to something and it's inland and away from the sea. I get, I get twitchy. I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to that too. <laughs> Went up to New South Wales South Coast, so that's where I've been for the last – well, I haven't been there for three weeks. That would have been amazing. I was there for about 10 days, so – Beautiful. Yeah. And the show didn't fall apart while you were away, but it is fantastic to have listening. you back. I was listening. On demand or? Uh, no, via streaming. Beautiful. When I was up there. Yep. And, um, yeah, live at home. Nice. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And welcome to everyone that's listening live at home, wherever <laughs> yes. you may be or wherever, however you Or listen. later. Maybe yes. it's not Sunday morning when you're listening or um, maybe it's sometime in the morning and you're on the other side of the world from where we are. So who knows? Yes. Driving driving to work, listening to the podcast is a common one. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, thank you very much, Tim, for Vital Bits. Thank you, Andrew, for Soulful Bits. Um, Didn't catch who did things to do today. Was it Edith? Yes. It was. Thank you, Edith, very much. Uh, And, yeah, of course, you can catch Tim next week for more Vital Bits Saturday and Sunday and maybe the occasional breakfast spot. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> which, we all got a bit of a surprise when we turned on our radios. Well, it pretty much freaked out our whole house because the first thing I heard was Tim's voice on Friday morning and I was like, what? I've missed a day. Like, what's happened? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Saturday. But uh, yeah, he, he, basically it felt like my weekend started early, so I appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. Oh, that's good. Delightful. All right, big program coming up today and uh, in our first guest will be Dr Killian Quigley. And um, uh, Killian was actually lined up uh, a few weeks ago to come in, had a bit of a mix-up and it was at, at my end, Mayor Culpa. Um, but Killian's in, uh, very excited to have him in to speak about Melbourne Now. So Melbourne Now, is, it's an annual celebration of art, culture, design, basically all of the latest contemporary art in Melbourne. And there's quite a lot happening this year which is ocean-inspired so a lot of ocean-inspired pieces uh, on display for Melbourne now. Well, of course, we're always inspired by it and it's nice to see other people are too. It'd be yeah. great to hear about it. So um, Killing is an academic and particularly interested in aesthetics and ocean aesthetics and this whole field called Blue Humanities, which I didn't even know about. So I, don't, I know nothing about it, so I'm going to learn... I'll just sit here and spectate basically yeah. when he comes in. When I say I didn't know, like it's not like I know everything, of course. But we've been... <laughs> You've been talking about them. Yeah, you've been doing this for 20 years. Before. I know. <laughs> I'm thinking Blue Humanities, this sounds cool. So anyway, we'll be speaking with Killian about that. We will then be crossing uh, on the phone to speak with Myra Kelly, our dive reporter uh, for a dive report. Um, just a general dive report. Bit, yeah. of a, bit of an observation. She hasn't been following the um, the spider crabs. You'll know a lot more about spider crabs than me, Kate. 
Oh, look, they've definitely been around and people are posting the photos. That's, I guess, about all people tend to say. It's very hush-hush and wink-wink, nod-nod to find out where they are, except for when they are somewhere pretty obvious, which they were in at Blaugary last week. Right. Um, And quite a few people got down there to see them amongst all the silt that was kicked up by both the divers and churned up by the spider crabs. Yeah. Yeah, the conditions are perfect. There is no wind around at the moment. It's just whether that rain has had much of an impact in some of the near-shore spots. But if you can get on a boat... Go. We'll uh, we'll talk tomorrow about that, and um, then to for the second half of the show, we'll be speaking with Scott Breshkin. Now you might remember we spoke with Scott back in February from the Nature Conservancy about uh, this great work that I know you've been involved in as well, Cade, uh, with oyster reef restoration in Port Phillip Bay uh, and and then in the Gippsland Lakes. Um, There's a whole new restoration project relating to Golden Kelp, which has just been announced in the last week. Uh, It's a collaborative work between Nature Conservancy, Parks Victoria, uh, Melbourne and Deakin Universities, I think. So it's a a really good collab piece that's happening here. So we're going to talk to Scott about that, um, find out what is Golden Kelp, which species are we talking about and a bit of history about golden kelp in Port Phillip Bay. What happened to it? Why don't we have those kelp forest ecosystems that used to be and and this really great piece of work to restore them? Yeah, and it ties in. We've had Scott Egger, not Scott Egger, this from Tripod, Aaron... God, we had Aaron. Superfluity. Yes, yes, that's right. And we have we had Aaron Egger on a couple of times talking about the Kelp Forest Alliance and that restoration challenge that's out there to something like two hundred thousand MCGs. And this sort of ties in with that. And it's really interesting to see it happening in our own backyard, and particularly at this early stage to jump on it now as a story for something to us to be able to follow and for the listeners to sort of be dragged along with is very exciting, which kind of leads into our third guest is that this restoration work is happening inside parks, so in marine inside marine parks in that sort of northern end and eastern side of the bay. So we have Michael Sams from Parks Victoria who we've had him before who I think has been, been in the job maybe two years now and one of the first things he did was just sort of a bit of summary of 20 years' worth of parks data. So looking at all that information that's been collected over time and we're going to chat to him about, you know, bit of a recap on some of that information but also how we got to the stage where we are starting to do this work inside a park so where we're starting to restore golden kelp like what has led to making that decisions and then what are some of the things and challenges that they're expecting along the way because anyone who's tried to you know restore a patch of garden or restore anything knows that it doesn't always go to plan so it's going to be really interesting to have these conversations now and be able to follow these sort of challenges over time triple r Do you have some news? I just have a quick one, and this is for anyone and everyone. You don't have to be in the water. The City Nature Challenge is on at the moment. Now, if you haven't heard of the City Nature Challenge, it basically is a competition between cities around the world. So at the moment, there's 485 cities competing in it across 46 countries. And the way that you get involved is there's a little app called iNaturalist. You can use either on your desktop or on your phone. It was created around the time when putting an eye in front of something made it cool. Um, (laughs) It's managed to survive the test of time and is still going. And what it does, it does a lot of the hard work for you when it comes to identifying like whether it's plants, spiders, moths and particularly sea creatures. And we actually, um, people reached out and said, can you let the marine community in on this? Because Port Phillip Bay is considered part of Melbourne for this challenge. So it's a really good way to bump up the number of species seen. So you take a photo, you put it in, you click on a little box that's, you know, 
about identifying and it has all this machine learning in the background and if enough photos have gone in it can reasonably accurately help you help point you in the right direction and then it outsources that identification to the community and they help do it i think melbourne finished in the about the top 30 or 40 last year and so there's a bit of a push you know we're kind of competitive in this city we like to be the best at everything so if you're out there anywhere whether you're in the water or on land start snapping photos use the iNaturalist app and um can help us win the city nature challenge pretty cool yeah and it's lots of fun too it becomes quite addictive yeah hey while we're doing thank you kate while we're doing plugs um today i heard tim mention before we'll mention it you'll hear it throughout the day the last day of april amnesty so uh if you haven't subscribed yet if you're not a, a you know traditional radiothon subscriber in august or if you're listening and you've never subscribed it would be a really good time to do that so uh yeah subscribe or donate by the end of today we've got a whole bunch of prizes it's like our little mini mini kind of radiothon that happens every year throughout april so get amongst it Yeah, just a reminder that we do lots of amazing stuff because you help us. That's right. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 Triple R. Now, Melbourne Now is an annual celebration of the latest art, culture, design and architectural practice shaping Melbourne. It's on now at NGV's Ian Potter Centre and the 2023 Melbourne Now exhibition features many ocean-inspired pieces across displays of fashion and jewellery, painting, sculpture, architecture and ceramics, video production, printmaking and publishing. To find out all about the ocean-inspired art featured in this year's Melbourne Now, it's a great pleasure to welcome ocean historian, author and ocean aestheticologist, I just made up that word, Dr (laughs) Killian Quigley about Melbourne Now what it means to be an ocean aesthetics specialist and the field of blue humanities. A lot to talk about. Good morning, Killian. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. Um, now, I actually, as I just said, made up that word, aestheticologist. Um, someone who's, I like it. Yeah? yeah definitely. <laughs> We're going to run Take with that. Take it on board for sure. <laughs> um, you study aesthetics of the ocean. This is so super cool. Mm. Um, why ocean aesthetics? What led you to that? Mm, good question. There's a kind of, I guess, a a professional answer to that question and maybe a personal answer to that question. So the professional answer, I think, is that in graduate school, I spent a lot of time studying the history of what we might call environmental aesthetics, more broadly construed. So to use a kind of prominent example, the history of landscape aesthetics in Western art. And one of the things that I became really interested in in graduate school were the ways in which oceans, oceanic spaces, particularly sort of pelagic spaces and submarine spaces, just didn't figure in those histories of environmental aesthetics. And that made me really interested in asking, what would an aesthetic history, a cultural history of humans, of human life, of human imagination, look like if we took it to sea, even more so if we took it under the waves? And those are questions that have inspired my own work for a long time now. The more personal answer to the question is that um, thanks to my extended family who all live in Ireland and thanks to um, experiences I've had here in Australia, um, ocean swimming, diving, going to sea more generally um, have been super formative and uh, going underwater was something I often felt I didn't have the the terms um, to describe and uh, and so I've committed part of my, my life to sort of... Uh, 
helping us develop a few of those terms. Yeah, wow. And Blue Humanities right. mentioned that too. Yeah. That is a field of, of interest and study and research. Most definitely. Yeah. So it's a kind of, I guess you could, maybe the best way to think of it is a sort of constellation of researchers working across a variety of different subjects, a variety of different methods. Um, and maybe one, one way of thinking about what the Blue Humanities is about is that if we think about kind of, um, say, maritime history, conventionally construed, um, we might often be thinking about sort of stories of people in boats traversing oceanic spaces as ways of moving from one terrestrial space to another. Um, perhaps in those kinds of histories, um, some interesting things happen at sea, but, but the sea remains sort of peripheral to the center of the action, which is all about getting from one terrestrial place to another. And so I guess you might say that, that for Blue Humanities researchers, the question is, what happens when we center oceanic spaces, oceanic materialities, oceanic lives, human and, of course, non-human as well? Um, what sorts of new stories, what sorts of new histories, what sorts of new approaches um, do we wind up arriving at? Yeah, This is just blowing my mind. We've, we've been doing what we do um, with this program for over 20 years and we've been, we've been so focused on science sure. and community um, work with the marine environment. Um, but this whole new field, which is just sitting there, and we sort of we dabble as we've done the entire time in ocean-inspired art, literature, of um, and, and, and so on, and music. But to, to have this all wrapped up in a whole field of study all on its own mm. is just wonderful to discover. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think it's, it's thanks to the work that people like you do um, that I think um, fellow researchers in the humanities, who I think perhaps have often felt, um, you know, perhaps underqualified in certain ways, quite tentative about venturing into realms that, as you say, have tended to be constructed through scientific knowledges. It's, it's thanks... Um, to, to work like this, that I think folks have felt particularly have felt more and more sort of emboldened to take um, literary study, to take the philosophy of aesthetics, to take environmental history into blue spaces. And we should say, of course, as well, that um, you know, working in the humanities, one also feels the kind of urgency, one also feels the call to respond to phenomena like climate change, which mm -hmm. of course our colleagues in the scientists in the sciences, excuse me feel as well. And so, yeah, these questions about how to mobilize humanity's knowledges in ways that might be positively impactful, um, yeah, for the sea, among other things. Uh, no, I was just listening and obviously you touched on like things we have in common, obviously, mm. with the science and humanities and around that sort of call to action and things like that. Right. But one of the things I was really curious about is how long has this field existed? So Blue Humanities, um, is it something that has been just, you know, bubbling away under the surface for a long time? pardon the pun, or is it something that's only more recently sort of started to come to light? Yeah, it's a great question. So the term Blue Humanities emerges in the late 2000s and is taken up then. Wow, so pretty recent. Pretty recent, yeah. yeah. Um, but of course, you know, um, that work drew, you know, it drew upon then and it continues to draw upon now works that, have, that, that, that go back, indeed, you know, to the beginning of, of, of recorded human culture, really. Um, I think what's organised the field, or again, the sort of constellation, 
is more about trying to sort of um, think in more sort of methodologically ambitious ways, thinking past sort of anthropocentric histories, for example, of seas. And I should emphasize here as well that when I talk about these as sort of new questions, I'm really thinking about particular sort of like Western intellectual and academic histories. The Maori scholar Alice Tupunga Somerville has a great line on this where she writes something. I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it's something like, um, you know, not all cultures have needed a turn toward the sea because some were already there. <laughs> you know, so I want to I want to I want to be clear about 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 that, that what I'm really thinking about are, you know, particular sort of Western academic traditions um, that have been sort of constituted at times in ways that, again, if they sort of incorporated oceans, um, may have done so sort of peripherally or incidentally to those more kind of terrestrial Stories. I've already lined up my next three segments with you, Killian. Oh, in my head. Stop. Stop. <laughs> Maybe we'll just new so, co-host. So, so what I want to do is focus on Melbourne now, and Great. I'm not kidding. I want to talk about the oceanic humanities of Global South because that's something that you've been yeah. a member of, uh, and also various publications that you've done as well. But we're not, we're only going to at the very best touch on them very briefly if if I do that now. So I'm going to put that to one side, awesome. and and we'll we'll get into that next time you come in, assuming that's okay with you. I mean, look, I'm starstruck over here. I've been a fan for a long time. Excellent. Let's get to Melbourne now because otherwise we will run out of time. Great. Um, So you've you've been through it. Tell us about what's on offer at Melbourne now. So I Mm. guess picking up from what we've just been speaking about, ocean-inspired arts, what can people see if they go along? Totally. Yeah. I'll get right to that because there's so much we might say about the exhibit more broadly, which I really love and which is vast. And as you touched on earlier on, you know, um, ranges across a whole variety of different practices, fine art, but also jewelry, clothing, books, industrial design, homewares, architecture, etc. But look, one of the one of the first pieces that struck me both times that I've gone in to look at it is um, Lee Derrick's Dirta Ganawaka or Save Mother Earth. So Lee Derrick, very well known, Yorta Yorta, Mutti Mutti and Boon artist based in Gippsland. And, and she's got this piece um, that kind of introduces or, or, or draws one into the broader exhibition space. And what it is is a 10-metre-long um, installation of dozens upon dozens of pieces of driftwood that are arranged on a wall. Um, and at first glance, they look as though they've been sort of cast up, right? That what you're looking at is a kind of beach scene. But as you get a little bit closer, what you notice is that you know, in in the middle of this kind of 10-metre-long band of driftwood um, are many pieces collected together in what look a, a little bit like a couple of driftwood ladders. Um, and what I learned was that Derek is using jute, the plant fibre, to tie together two sets of driftwood, 38 pieces each, Thirty-eight for thir- the number 38 for 38 men, 38 women, and the 38 Aboriginal language groups in Victoria. And what I loved about this piece, right, um, was that it seemed to be, you know, materializing in a really fascinating way, the way that driftwood on a beach um, represents the ocean's power to kind of take material, slightly rework it in a way that we might almost describe as kind of artful, and then return it to land in a kind of provocatively rearticulated way. And of course, Derek's approach then herself to arranging this, I found super fascinating. I mean, things like 
driftwood, it seems to me, have been going back, you know, go back in time as, as artifacts for human making in so many fascinating ways. We've all had the experience of going to the beach, seeing something that's been taken, um, reshaped, and then returned that has an effect on us that can be super profound. And I think Derek captures that sort of spectacularly powerfully. Amazing. And then having that number 38 as being the centre center point for, for where everything else completely was developed. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. So it sort of situates us right on and from the beach, right from the get go for yeah. the exhibition. Where do we go from there? Where do we go, where do we go from there? <laughs> right. So uh, at least, at least one or two more pieces that I wanted to, to, to sort of touch on. So, so one is a, is a three part video installation by the Melbourne based artist, Drew Pettifer. Um, and I should, I should sort of provide a trigger warning here that what I'm about to describe references sort of anti-queer homophobic violence, but a really powerful piece of three officially untitled videos hung together on a wall. In the center is a video of a seascape, waves just kind of moving in space and on either side from the waist up to nude men. What this work references is a 1727 voyage of the Jivek, which is a Dutch United East India Company ship, and two young men aged 18 and 22 who were convicted in the course of the voyage of sodomy for being lovers and then were marooned as punishment, separate from one another on islands in the Houtman of Rolos off Western Australia where they died. And for Pettifer, this represents the beginning of Australia's European queer history. And I found this super interesting. So one approaches this piece in the gallery. It's very quiet. It's very con contemplative. It's very beautiful. And at the same time, with each of these sort of um, men looking straight out, there's a kind of defiance, right, amidst this kind of fluidity, amidst this seascape um, that I've found really memorable, obviously accessing some, um, you know, devastating histories, really, um, but in ways that I found super evocative um, and incredibly beautiful. Yeah, so powerful. Mm. Amazing. Are you? Does that, for people who might want to go and see that and potentially find that triggering, There is there... A warning before you go into that room? That's a really good question, Bron. I can't recall that there is, but I shouldn't say there's not. I'm just not sure. Good to be aware of. Yeah, yep. definitely. I don't know if we have time to talk about anything more. Maybe one more super quick one? <laughs> <Yeah>. Really <laughs> briefly, super quickly. Um, just wanted to touch on Nicholas Mangan's core correlations. So much we might say about this. I'll just say this is a, a film and sculpture work which builds from Mangan's fieldwork at the Australian Institute for Marine Science and especially the sea simulator and coral core facilities there, as well as his fieldwork at Heron Island, as, as folks will know, towards the south end of the Great Barrier Reef. Some works that I think are really trying to sort of push, pa push past anthropocentric points of view to get us to really contemplate, to, to sort of center coral life and coral death in the ways that we think about our sort of moment. Again, confrontingly, but also very meditatively, very reflectively and incredibly beautifully, ultimately. Is that the photo that you sent me yesterday? Excellent. So if you go to our Facebook page, you'll see that there's a photo 
of what uh, Killian's just been describing. Uh, if you click on that photo, it has that brief description and then takes you to a link um, where you can go and observe Melbourne now for yourself. So it's ngv.vic.gov.au forward slash Melbourne now. And, uh, but we've put a link to that on our Facebook page, making it easy for you to go and find. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. What an amazingly powerful segment that's been. And thank you for sorting out my afternoon after the show. I know exactly where I'm going. (laughs) That's where you're going. You've sold me. Yeah, Yeah, brilliant. And will you come back? Any look, any time. We would love to have you back. Yeah. Thank you so much. Wow. Mind blown. Oh, could have, Gone for another 28 minutes, (laughs) but we have more to do. Triple R. Without further ado, it's time for our dive report with Mara Kelly. Good morning, Mara. Good morning, Bron. Good morning, Kate. How are you both? Probably not as good as you. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, we've kept you waiting for a while, and I know you're pretty keen to get into the water and, and have a big splash. Where are you off to today? Uh, look, I have actually had a, a second shot down here at Blairgowrie this weekend. Quite a contrast to last week. It's super quiet in the car park. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to gearing up and uh, just having a, a look around and seeing what's there. Um, but, yeah, it's super interesting show listening to what you've been talking about. And the other thing was also you know, when you said listening to the show from the other side of the world, Um Cara, Hull, our uh, our other dive reporter and my dive buddy. I'm missing her this morning. She's on the other side of Australia in WA and gearing up to go diving over there this morning. Uh, so the other side of the, the Great Southern Reef. Amazing. Uh, yeah, it'll be pretty early over in Perth. Like two or three hours <laughs> behind. I think they're two, so it would be uh, 7.30 their time at the moment. But, you know, it's Perth, so... We don't have a lot of sympathy for them. It's beautiful all the time. Um, now you we're, met- we're still connected for the southern, the uh, still connected by the Great Southern Reef, though. So uh, yeah, really interesting. That's true. That's true. Um, so yeah, you mentioned last week frenetic activity down in Blairgowrie, uh, and I gather that was related to spider crabs. And we're going to say up front they're not there now, clearly because uh, you know don't don't get down there. But um, yeah, a lot of a lot of activity happening last weekend. It was. Uh, yeah, pretty chaotic down here last weekend. Um, so much so uh, interest that was generated. Um, we actually didn't end up getting in the water. We headed down to Portsea and jumped on a boat for a, a dive out off Portsea Hole, and uh, it was incredible. The um, the marine life, the, the sponges, the soft corals, the diversity, and the, the difference that we see, um, you know, in the... the Port Phillip Marine National Park um, as opposed to what's below our piers. Um, if you're interested in boat diving at all, um, get on a boat, um, get out and, and, and have a look and uh, you'll be really pleasantly surprised. Um, and uh, water temperature at the moment, Mara? It's still about 17 degrees. Uh, it is starting to, to cool down, I, I guess, as we're heading towards the uh, the, the winter winter months, but uh, that still shouldn't stop people from getting in the water. Um, Melbourne diving over winter can be some of the best diving to be had. Um, The visibility, I find, actually improves as the water cools a bit. There's uh, less particles in the water. Um, The marine life changes as well, and uh, there's obviously a few less people in the water to 
to compete with as, as well. Um, but yeah, plenty of garments, really great wetsuits out there to, to keep you, um, you know, in the water and uh, and diving all throughout Melbourne's winter. Brilliant. Thanks, Myra. Um, always a pleasure to speak with you, and we'll catch up with uh, either yourself or Cara next week and uh, and talk more about diving locally. Yeah, thank you, Bron. Ha- have a great day. You too. Bye. See ya. Bye for now, Myra Kelly. There. Yep. What a contrast between two weekends down at Blue Gowrie. Yeah, that's it, but just get in anywhere you can today. Yeah. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Now, back in February, you might recall, we spoke with Scott Breshkin from the Nature Conservancy about the work that they were leading to restore oyster reefs in the Gippsland Lakes. And at the time, Scott gave us a scoop about another exciting project in the planning, and that's to restore Golden Kelp Reef ecosystems in Port Phillip Bay. So the exciting news is this project has just been launched and uh, to tell us all about it, what we can expect in the months ahead. It's a great pleasure to welcome back to Triple R, Southeast Oceans Project Coordinator uh, with the Australian Program from the Nature Conservancy. Conservancy. Scott Breshkin. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. It's an absolute pleasure. And should we also mention that we have sitting next to Scott, Michael Sams, the Manager of Marine and Coastal Science Programs at Park Victoria, who has also been in talk about marine parks. And just coincidentally, we had on with Scott at the same time, given that this project will be undertaken in parks. So good morning, Mike. Morning. Thanks for having me. We've done one of those quick uh, quick things where we thought, you know what, let's, let's um, the, the sum of parts is better than the, whatever <laughs> the expression is so um yeah great these the work that you're both doing is actually connected mm. it made perfect sense to have you both in here to speak with us about it at the same time um scott first question for you about the partnership how did that all come about so this is quite a big we were mentioning at the start of the program it's the nature conservancy it's parks victoria uh, melbourne and deakin university so you know quite a lot of involvement here from different respective parties how did that all come about yeah, so I guess the idea was to kind of bring together all the leading players in um, both kind of urchin research and management, um, uh, as well as kelp research um, and, and restoration, as well as kind of, um, you know, parks as, as being the managers of the parks that we're, they're aiming to work in. So it's really, as you say, a collaborative project that's kind of bringing together everybody um, um, to kind of try and solve this, um, this complex problem. All right, let's talk about golden kelp, because this is the, the feature... Uh, Species? Correct. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think of another word. What is golden kelp? Yeah, so golden kelp or a clonia radiata is um, one of one of a few kelp species that we have here in Australia. Um, and it's uh, it's really synonymous with the extent of the Great Southern Reef. So it sort of occurs around about 8,000 kilometres along our coastline in Australia, sort of from the northern New South Wales down the east coast and along southern Australia into western Australia. And it's a really important species because along with other macroalgae species, it kind of forms these um, really complex forest-like structures. And those um, forests, if, if you like, um, create really important habitat as well as food and shelter for a number of, um, you know, fish species and invertebrates and also supports things like, um, you know, our abalone and rock lobster fisheries. So really high value kind of habitat. And so when you go outside the bay and into that sort of more ocean, open ocean environment, a clonia is pretty common but it used to be in the bay. Yeah, so probably up until the you know around the the, the 1980s, it was also um, you know widespread in the bay a lot, a, along a lot of our rocky reefs. Um, but since that time, over the last few decades, we've we've seen a big decline. Um, so probably. 
Yeah, in some areas of the bay, we've lost maybe, you know, more than 90% of this sort of important habitat, um, particularly around some of those marine sanctuaries. So sort of Jawbone Marine Sanctuary, as well as um, Ricketts Point, um, those, those, those sanctuaries have really seen a, a big decline in those, um, those kelp forest habitats. Yeah, so here's the big question. Why? <laughs> What's happened? Why are we losing our kelp? Yeah, so the, the primary reason that we've lost those kelp habitats is um, due to the overabundance of a native sea urchin. So that's the purple sea urchin or the short spine sea urchin, which naturally occurs in the bay and it's a naturally a part of a healthy kelp forest ecosystem. The problem is when it gets to numbers where it is overabundant, um, it can overgraze, um, so it does eat kelp and other macroalgae and it can cause these barren um, barren sort of habitats where essentially you sort of go quickly from a, 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 you know, a beautiful lush sort of forest-like habitat full of lots of macroalgae and lots of life um, to these barren desert sort of seascapes where really all you've got is bare rock and a lot of urchins. And I, I guess I want to aim this one towards Mike. So it, urchins, it's not just something occurring inside like parks. It's occurring throughout the bay. Like it's a very broad scale um, problem. But you're in the unique position managing parks that you can actually do something about it. And I know parks, you know, this decision wasn't made in haste. There's a whole lot of work that's gone into making that decision. Can you just take us through some of that? Because we could actually have a whole show on the decision-making process. But can you just take us through some of that and how we got to this stage where, like, okay, now we've got to do something, this is the problem, and this is how we go about helping basically restore it? Mm, sure. And I'll try to be succinct because we could have a whole show probably. But um, <laughs> So obviously the first thing is identifying the problem. So there's been, you know, probably 10 to 15 years of really comprehensive research just to understand what's happening with our uh, macroalgal kelp forests across northern Port Phillip Bay. And that ident- identified, as Scott said, that really significant loss over time um, due to urchins. I guess the other part of it is that um, our marine sanctuaries, marine national parks, were set up specifically with that purpose to protect biodiversity, um, which is, you know, as you alluded to, makes it in some ways easier to identify what we need to do to manage it there. So if we're losing macroalgae and we've got all this evidence showing that it's lost and it should be there, it's part of a healthy ecosystem, then those parks aren't really achieving that purpose that they were set up for. And that's, a, you know, a major driver for us to get in there and, and manage it. Yeah, and I guess this might be for Scott. And I was just thinking, but listeners at home are going, OK, we're restoring it. Like, people can understand planting a tree in their garden. How the hell do you do this? I'd imagine it's it's a little bit different, isn't it? It is. And what's really exciting is this, this is kind of the first time that we're trialling some particularly novel techniques to do, um, to do restoration. And so what that'll involve is we're actually um, cultivating kelp, um, kelp babies, if you like, in a laboratory setting. So really working with kelp at a microscopic level. And what we're doing is, um, and this is Deakin University who are leading this aspect of the project, is they're growing kelp onto um, cotton twine in the lab. Um, so they start with microscopic little kelp uh, or, or spores that sort of eventually develop into kelp on twine and also on, on bits of gravel. And then what we'll do is outplant those. So we'll take those once they've developed into sort of smaller kelps, we'll take them out and we'll, we'll kind of attach them or plant them onto the rocky reefs in these barren areas. And then eventually those kelp babies kind of grow out on off the, the gravel or the twine and then they'll attach themselves to the rock and then they'll also reproduce and then they, they'll kind of recruit more individuals onto those sort of rocky reefs habitat so it's pretty unique um, and we're really trialing uh, at this part this this project is really about trialing the best ways to kind of do this moving forward out in natural world how do a basic question here how do kelp reproduce because they're not flowering plants they're not like sea grasses how do they naturally reproduce yeah, they have a, quite a complex kind of life life cycle, um, but effectively they release um, spores from their um, from the blades of the kelp, um, which then develop into. Um 
yeah, you kind of get male and female gametophytes, they're called, and then those gametophytes develop and eventually they're fertilised and then they change again into another form and they kind of develop into these microscopic sporophytes or microscopic baby kelps, which then um, that's kind of what attaches to a, to a hard surface and grows. But, yeah, it is quite a complex um, um, life history. But in terms of how we can do that in the laboratory, all we need is to take a, a sample, so a, a non-destructive way. We just cut a little bit of a blade of, of kelp off. We can take that to the lab and then get it to release its kind of um, reproductive material. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I guess, and I don't want to harp on about this urchin thing, Michael, but it is something that comes up. Like, if you were to drop that down in a place where there's lots of urchins, they would just be like buffet, amazing, fantastic. Thank you very much. So I'm guessing part of this, like, is there site preparation going on around this? Have you identified locations where you think you're going to have the most success? Like, obviously you have. I'm just asking this question so people mm, you know, yeah. are aware that this sort of thought process has gone through. It's not just throwing these things off a side of a boat. No, absolutely not, no. So, I mean, we're using a combined approach here where we actually reduce urchin numbers through culling. As Scott said, you know, urchins are a, a natural, important part of the ecosystem, so it's just about getting them down to those dense cities there's been extensive research that says if you get them down to between two to four urchins per meter squared then kelp comes back um, and that doesn't suppress kelp recovery so we're getting them down to those densities to prepare the ground for the restoration um, we're also at the moment we haven't quite identified areas but we're undertaking a lot of mapping to identify where we think the priority and the best places are and we know from all the science that's out there that just as an example probably the best places to undertake the restoration is where we have um, I guess these areas of urchin barrens that are also on the verge of where we have good existing areas of, of underwater forest that still remain there because we know we can get the urchins down, we get the active kelp in, but we also get the benefit of their, you know, where there's existing kelp, the ongoing recruitment of their little babies coming in that kind of complements the whole project and, you know, increases our chances of success. I think it's really important to, to remember that 20 years ago when this system of marine parks and sanctuaries was set up, Nobody had a crystal ball to see which way this would turn out. And, and we know just from connections that we have with our listeners that this is a really emotive issue. People are quite um, upset about the concept of going into a marine environment and, and culling these animals. But if, coming right back to what you were talking about, the whole point of these uh, protected areas in the first place is to maintain biodiversity uh, that hasn't happened because of this factor. And so these are some management interventions mm. that are now going to occur to, to get it back to what it was intended to be in the first place. Yeah, and, and if I could just say something in response to that, I mean, uh, managing urchins is really serious because it, they are native and we want them in the system. They become overabundant. But we also have to think about the cost and benefits. So if we lose all this macroalgal forest because um, urchins are overabundant eating their way through it, there's thousands and thousands of other fish species, other invertebrate species that are totally reliant on these forests and we actually risk losing them. So, you know, it's harm to one species but to the benefit of significantly more in a whole ecosystem. That's right and that's the role of management. We're just going to pause just for a moment um, just to play some station announcements if that's okay, Nerida, and then uh, we will continue this discussion and actually have a look at the, the plan ahead over the next few months um, and, and years presumably and, and what we can expect to see. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Triple R. We've only got a few minutes left, and uh, if you've just joined, we're speaking with Michael Sams from Parks Victoria, Scott Breshkin from the Nature Conservancy about this really exciting work to restore kelp forests. Um, so, well, I'm saying kelp forests, but it's golden kelp, a colonia radiata in Port Phillip Bay. Um, now, timeline for this work is how long are we talking about? 
Yeah, so this project's been funded by the Victorian government um, and the current grant um, will take us through to the end of 2024. Um, and it's really about um, trialling and sort of a pilot-scale trial, I guess, to, to work out the best methods for this sort of restoration going forward. So really it's just the beginning, um, but this information will be critical to kind of inform scaling up, you know, for the next couple of years. What's the next... What have we got sort of planned over the next month or so? Yeah, so I've got a busy few weeks coming up. Um, so over the next few weeks, um, we'll be doing some of our site establishments. So in order to be able to kind of go out and, and, and attach twine and things like that into the park, we have to go and do a bit of setup with some commercial divers to attach some um, some some rebar and some things like that that we can actually tie off twine. So that'll be happening um, pretty soon. Um, we've got some monitoring underway, so it's really important to undertake sort of baseline um, and, and post-restoration monitoring to both understand the kind of success of, of the outplantings um, as well as, you know, any changes that we're seeing with time and that will that will really inform the kind of plans going forward um, and then in water restoration will begin probably the next three to four weeks um, and really what we're looking to do is over the next sort of 12 months is look at a few variables so looking at the timing so what's the best time to get these sort of kelp babies into the water um, and also looking at the different methods so is twine better than gravel or is a mixture of both the way to go um, and then also looking at um, the source population so it, is there genetics involved in terms of where we get these um, uh, you know where do we get the material from to, to kind of cultivate kelp. Now I imagine there's a lot of snorkelers and divers out there listening going that sounds fascinating I know those parks I know this stuff there's every chance they're going to want to either go and check it out or be involved in some way is that something you're looking at doing like how are you going to take the community along obviously this is a good start you're on their show but how are you going to take them on this journey? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, for the moment, um, it's a sort of, uh, yeah, a process that's limited to sort of the institutions and the parks that we're kind of working with. But the idea going forward, and we have put in a, um, a, a, an application to receive some funding from the Port Phillip Bay Fund to try and get the community involved in this in this process. So the sort of getting citizen scientists involved in monitoring and, and activities like that would be fantastic. And that's certainly the aim kind of going forward. And we know there's great communities around a lot of those uh, marine sanctuaries that would be very keen to kind of get involved and help. So we'll, we'll try and identify those pop, those possibilities where we can. And, and the one other thing I'd add is we're also hoping to run some events and things like that where the community, rather than not necessarily being involved in the activities, but can come and learn about more all this science that's been done out there, what's happening in the bay, and then we might also have some opportunities we can present to them. Yeah, and I think being able to watch them over time would be very exciting. Yeah. Well, yeah, and a great note to finish on, uh, this is an 18-month project at least coming up, so uh, we will love to continue this conversation, if that's okay with you both. Sounds Definitely. great. We'll yeah. have a little progress report over the next 18 months um, periodically to see how this is all travelling. Sounds great. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Thank you. Wonderful to speak with you both. Michael Sams from Parks Victoria, Scott Breshkin from The Nature Conservancy. We had Myra Kelly giving our dive report and Dr Killian Quigley um, speaking about Melbourne now. Thank you, Nerida, very much for panelling for us today, keeping us on our toes. Thank you, Cade. You're welcome, Bron. Thank you. Welcome back. Oh, it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, you're on with Anth next week. Yes, I think we're talking about underwater acoustics. Again, something I know very little about. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, stay tuned. We've got all of those details, I should say, already on our Facebook. Facebook page, so you can go and check out um, the the uh, bit that we put up yesterday for today's show. Just click on relevant photographs, and it'll take you through to relevant links where you can find out more. Have a wonderful Sunday. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy, and we'll catch you next week for more Radio Marinara. Bye for now. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.